0: Great. Well, I am thrilled to be here, and I'm even more thrilled that your pastoral staff has chosen to take on Revelation. Uh, not many churches are so bold to do that. But hopefully, as we'll see, uh, I'm convinced Revelation has <clears throat> a crucial message for the church today that we ignore at our own peril. Uh, so I'm, I'm uh, thrilled that you've chosen to take this book on. I remember when I was a college student at Colorado Christian University that one summer I went home to Montana Uh, where I had several odd jobs with a number of ranchers in the community uh, to try to raise some money to pay for tuition. And and I remember one day, one of the ranchers called me up and he asked me to come help him dismantle an old log cabin. Uh, This log cabin had been built in the 1930s or 40s or something like that. And some of the logs were still good, so he wanted to salvage them uh, to use for one of his own building projects. So I, I showed up and we began to take this thing apart and began to pull the logs off And I noticed as we began to take the logs off, uh, there were, I I found a number of old newspapers from the 30s or 40s stuffed inside the logs, probably to fill the cracks, to keep out the cold Montana winter winds. And as I looked at some of these newspapers, one of the things that caught my attention uh, was the political cartoons. And I looked at them and soon began to discover that I had no idea what they were talking about, and I had no clue what they were doing. And uh, on a little bit further reflection, I discovered why. Number one, they used, these political cartoons used symbols and images that I was not familiar with. Some of them I was, some of the standard images like a donkey and an elephant and an eagle, you know what those refer to in the political world. But most of the others, I had no idea what they were and what they were referring to. The second problem was, I did not understand or I could not recall historical and politically what was taking place in the 1940s. So I was at a loss to make sense of these political cartoons. Now, why do I tell you that story? Uh, Because I think we're up against the same two things when it comes to the book of Revelation. First of all, Revelation is filled with images and symbols that at least to us, though I don't think to the first readers, but at least to us seem rather odd and strange and mysterious. When you enter the world of the book of Revelation, you enter a world that has a seven-headed dragon. You enter a world where eagles fly and they talk. You enter a world with locusts that have tails like scorpions and human heads. You enter a world full of uh, sulfur and fire and strange things like that. What do we do with that? Revelation is probably the most misunderstood book in the entire Bible. Uh, Some people ignore it. It's too strange and mysterious and can't make sense of it anyway, and we'll leave it for the experts to try to figure out. And we go to the safer ground of Paul's letters or something like that, or the gospels. Others seem to become obsessed with it. All you need to do is go into your computer and you'll find websites devoted to trying to decipher the book of Revelation and figure out exactly what it means and how it's predicting all kinds of events happening in the 21st century. Or, or ministries revolve around and center around trying to decipher the book of Revelation for those in their congregation. But we we can't ignore the book. The book of Revelation is scripture. It's God's word to his church today. So we ignore it and its message at our own peril. But we need to know how to understand it correctly so that we can hear God continue to speak to us. Chapter one of Revelation that Larry read for us this morning has a lot to tell us about what kind of book this is. And today, what I want to do is raise the question, what, what kind of book is Revelation? And how should we read it? How should you and I tackle this interesting book, this unique book? How does it continue to speak to us as the word of God? Look again at chapter one, one through three. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. The first thing we learn about this book and these verses is that it is a revelation. You probably think, well, duh, did I come here to hear that? That's what it says. It's a book of revelation. Uh, But this word revelation actually means an unveiling, an uncovering. And it referred to a kind of literature that unveiled or uncovered something through a vision. And that's exactly what's going on here. John has a vision that, that unveils or reveals or uncovers the true nature of things. It will tell him and his readers the true nature of the world that they live in. It will tell them about the, the, the true reality of who God is. It will uncover and unveil the true reality of who Jesus Christ is and what he is doing in the world. And I'm convinced when the first readers heard this read to them, which is how they would have first received it, when it came to the very first verse and they heard a revelation of Jesus Christ, they would have known what was coming next. This is a vision that will unveil or uncover the true nature of our world and and heaven and who God is and who Jesus Christ is. See, part of the problem with Revelation is we have difficulty understanding it because we really don't have any analogies to this. When we communicate, we do so through social media such as Facebook, or or again, we email, or once in a while on rare occasions, we'll sit down with pen and write a letter. Uh, we, We write and read poems. We read novels. We watch movies. But when's the last time you wrote or read something like the book of Revelation? We we just don't have this kind of thing. Although I think this was a very common type of writing for the first century readers and they would have known what it was they were reading. The The, the book of Revelation functions maybe a little bit like our modern day political cartoon. I use that in the, uh, the story I told at the beginning of the sermon. But you think about it, our modern day political cartoons, uh, what they do is they are, they are rather exaggerated, uh, uh, symbolic, graphic ways of trying to get a point across to you. They depict real events in our, polit- our history, and in, in our political situation, but they do so not literally, but by 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 images and symbols. Uh, here's one example. I've tried to choose this. I'm not trying to offend anyone. Uh, I'm not trying to use a one that uh, takes sides in the political debate. Uh, but but when you look at this, uh, you recognize these two individuals because of the caricature, the graphic way they're portrayed. And notice there's a little pan in the middle that 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 has a. Uh, there, in fact, the caption says "hot potato." If you ever played that game, a- and the little pan has writing on it, New York and New Jersey bombings. Now, did this literally happen? Did Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump get together and play a game of hot potato? No, but it symbolizes and represents something that's literally a literal debate, a literal disagreement between the two parties and between the two candidates. A political cartoon is, is an effective way to get you to see something from a specific perspective, from a certain point of view. The author could have just written a paragraph describing what's going on it, it, between Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump, but by using a cartoon with its graphic symbols and images, it, it's a more powerful way of, of getting you to, to see the point. That's what revelation does. Revelation is meant not just to play in your intellect, but on your emotions. It's meant to get you to to, to evoke your imagination, to see things in a new way. By its use of images and symbols, Revelation is trying to get you and the first readers to see their situation in a new light. See, Revelation doesn't describe things literally or scientifically. It uses uh, symbols and images that have the power to evoke a response in you. Uh, Reading Revelation is not like listening to a CNN documentary or watching something on the History Channel. It's more like taking a stroll through an art gallery where you see different images and impressions of different events and persons. Yes, Revelation is referring to actual persons and events and places in the first century and also in the future, but it describes them not literally or scientifically, but again, through images and symbols so that the readers get the point. For example, When you get to Revelation chapter 13, you'll get there eventually in the next few weeks or months. When you get to Revelation chapter 13, the author introduces you to a seven-headed beast. A seven-headed beast. What would you make of that? Well, if you're a reader living in the first century, Asia Minor, in one of these seven cities to which the book of Revelation was written, you probably would have identified it with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was was the the power of the day. It was growing by leaps and bounds and spreading its influence over all the inhabited earth. And John probably could have said, "Now, now guys, this Roman Empire that you see, it's really not all it's cracked up to be. It's, it's really evil, it's godless, it's idolatrous. It maintains peace through bloodshed and murder and it's out to get you. Instead, John says, and I saw a seven-headed dragon and fire came out of its mouth and he ruled over all the peoples of the earth. Which one is more effective? by portraying the Roman Empire as a seven-headed dragon. John helps his readers see things in a new light so that they'll respond appropriately. He exposes Rome for its true colors, for what it really is, so that his readers will get the point and they'll be enabled to resist it and instead to follow the Lamb, Jesus Christ, no matter what the consequences it might bring. So the book of Revelation is a revelation. It's an unveiling, an uncovering that reveals the true nature of the world the readers live in so that they can respond appropriately. Second, Revelation is also a prophecy. That's what John calls it a number of times. It's a prophecy. Now, the problem is when we think of prophecy, we think of predicting the future. So revelation for most of us becomes just a prediction of events, usually in the 20th or 21st century now. Uh, I'd like to compare that view of revelation to a crystal ball. It's as if John gazes into a crystal ball and he sees the future. He sees what's going on in our world in the 20th or 21st century. And now that his his curiosity is satisfied about what's going to happen, now he writes it down for his readers so they can know what's going to happen in the 20th or 21st century. So, so Revelation becomes just a prediction of what's gonna happen sometime in the future, the far off future for John and his readers. And usually the implication is now all of a sudden we can see it taking place in our own day. The problem is that view of revelation has far more in common with pagan prophecy than it does with biblical prophecy. That's what pagan prophecy did in the first century and what it does, Uh, whether it's fortune telling or looking into a crystal ball. And even in the first century, you could go to to an oracle and consult a prophet who would predict the future for you. Uh, Basically, pagan prophecy just predicts the future for the sake of knowing what's gonna happen in the future. But that's not what biblical prophecy is. Think about the Old Testament. When did God raise up prophets? Whenever Israel began to stray from their covenant relationship with God, whenever they begin to get into idolatry, whenever they begin to forsake their relationship with God, God would send prophets to call them back to repentance and to call them back to a relationship with him. That's what prophets did. They weren't there just to predict the future and tell people what's gonna happen in the far distant future. They were there to warn and to encourage people to repent and come back to a relationship with him. That's what Revelation does. Revelation calls on its readers to return to their relationship with Jesus Christ. When you read Revelation chapter two and three, the letters or messages to the seven churches, it's interesting, only two of those letters are addressed to churches that are suffering persecution. We often think Revelation's a book to comfort persecuted Christians. Well, that's true, but only two of the churches are suffering persecution. The other five They have become so complacent in the world. They have so compromised their witness with, so compromised with the Roman empire that they're in danger of losing their witness. And the message of those five churches is one of warning and a call to repentance before it's too late. That's what prophecy does. It's a call for God's people to repent, to return to a relationship with him and an encouragement for those that are suffering because of their witness. You see, uh, Revelation as a prophecy helps the readers make sense of their situation. Uh, Again, uh, Revelation is addressed to seven actual churches that existed in the Roman Empire of the first century. And, And as I said, Rome was the dominant empire of the day. It was growing by leaps and bounds and spreading its influence rome promised peace it promised prosperity it promised protection for anyone that submitted to its rule rome claimed to be the savior of the world it claimed that it was chosen by the gods even the roman Empire, emperor caesar was often treated as a god and worthy of worship and praise if you're a christian living in that environment what do you do well, two of the churches decided to take a stand for Jesus Christ and they paid the consequences. The other five became so much like Rome that Revelation is a warning of judgment if they don't repent. Revelation helps Christians in the first century resist the influence of a godless, evil, idolatrous, oppressive empire and to follow Jesus Christ, the lamb, wherever he goes and no matter what the consequences it brings. I mean, think about it. If, if, if John is addressing readers who are suffering in the Roman Empire, some of them suffering persecution, some have even died for their faith, others are, are in desperate need of being called back in repentance, uh, does it make any sense that John would say, let me tell you what's gonna happen in the 21st century? Uh, no, John must write something that helps them make sense of their own situation. John must write something that encourages them and warns them against the danger of giving in to Rome. Revelation is a prophecy. A third thing I wanna say, Revelation was meant to be understood by the very first readers. That's right. Revelation is not just a prediction of events that are gonna happen in the 21st century that John sees and then he has no idea what it is he's seeing, and he comes back and he tries to describe it to his readers who have no idea what John is talking about. Now this really dates me, but uh, I remember one of the first movies I ever watched was Back to the Future. If you've ever seen, there was a trilogy, Back to the Future, Back to the Future 2, and then 3. The main character, Marty McFly, was played by Michael J. Fox. And one of the key features of the story of all three of those was a, a, a car made by DeLorean. And this car had the ability to time travel. In the first episode, If you've ever seen these, in the first episode, uh, Michael J. Fox, Marty McFly goes back in time, but back to the future too, he actually goes forward in time where he sees what his life will be like far into the future. Sometimes that's what we think revelation is like that John gets in a DeLorean or a time capsule. He, he time travels into the future. He sees all these events in the 21st century uh, that he has no, you know, nuclear wars and computers and stuff. He has no idea what's going on. He goes back and tries to explain it to his readers who have no idea what he's saying. Nothing could be further from the truth. John is writing something that his first readers would understand. It's something that addresses their situation. Look again at chapter one, verse three. John says, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. That's how the first readers would have, uh, first uh, Christians would have heard the book of Revelation, read them. Blessed is the one who reads the words of the prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it for the time is near. That little phrase take to heart means to keep it or to obey it. Now, let me ask you, how could John expect his readers to obey this book if they had no idea what it was about? How could God require his people to obey this book if they have no clue what in the world this thing is about? They must have understood it. They must have had some idea what was going on in order to be able to obey it. Furthermore, you go to the very end of the book, chapter 22 and verse 10. At the very end of his vision, an angel comes to John and says, Do not seal up the words of this prophecy, for the time is at hand. In the first century, to seal up a book was to hide or save its contents for a later generation. In fact, the book, in the book of Daniel, Daniel is told to seal up the words of his prophecy because it's for a later time. But John is told just the opposite. Don't seal it up. It's not for some later time. Instead, he says the time is ha- at hand. It's not to be sealed up for a later generation because it's irrelevant and directly applicable and to be understood by the very first readers. I grew up in a church that said, well, again, that John had no idea what he's writing. His readers didn't either, but now we do. We can look out at our world and see all these things happening. I think just the opposite is true. John and his readers understood this book. We're the ones that have to do the hard work to try to figure out what it was that the readers and John would have understood about the book of Revelation. Any, any explanation of the book of Revelation that John's readers living in the first century without computers and nuclear war and, and, and helicopters and all kinds of technological advances, any, any explanation of Revelation that the first readers could not have understood is probably incorrect. When we start equating Revelation with nuclear war and bombs and, and, and computer and computer chips and things like that, You have to stop and ask yourself, is this what the readers would have made of this book? Remember, it's addressing them. It's meant to help them make sense. It's not sealed up for some later generation like ours. It speaks to them and helps them understand what it's like to live under an empire that is wreaking havoc. The fourth thing is to say is simply that Revelation is a book that's meant to be obeyed. Again, John says, blessed is the one who hears the words of this prophecy and takes to heart or keeps it or obeys it. Did you know Revelation is a book meant to be obeyed? Not just to help us figure out the end times and construct charts and and try to pin dates on things. Revelation is a book meant to call you to obedience to Jesus Christ. After introducing his book, John introduces us to the person that stands at the very center of the book, and that is Jesus Christ in verses 9 through 20. It's interesting that the very first thing that John sees is not end time stuff. The very first thing John sees in his vision in chapter one is the person of Jesus Christ. A stunning, stirring picture of who Jesus Christ is. I don't know about you, I I grew up in a church that often had various depictions of Jesus Christ. At Christmas time there would always be a nativity scene in the front and there was the manger with the baby Jesus Christ in it. And, and the pastoral scene, the lambs around and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and a very calm, serene scene. Or, or I remember pictures on the wall, uh, one of them of Jesus who was portrayed as a gentle shepherd with kind eyes and he's holding sheep. Or a picture of Jesus sitting down and beckoning children to come and they would sit on his lap. And certainly those are biblical. But that does not prepare you for the picture of Jesus that you see in chapter one of the book of Revelation. It's a a stunning picture, a kaleidoscope of images, most of them coming right out of the Old Testament. This is not a literal description of what Jesus said. This isn't a selfie that Jesus took and now he posts it for you to see. It's not a literal picture. It's, a, it's images that tell us something about who Jesus is and what he does. In this description, you read. You read that, that this Jesus who stands at the center of this book shines with the brilliant splendor of the glory of God. You find that he has feet like burnished bronze so that he is unmoved and stable and nothing can destroy him. You find that he has eyes like blazing fire that sees all things and pierces into your innermost being. You find that a sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth, suggesting that he judges all things, that he has the last word, the final say. you find that he is the beginning and the end. He stands at the beginning of history and at the end of history and everywhere in between. The picture you get is one who is the powerful ruler of all creation. The one who is in control of all things, who shines with all the radiance of God's glory. But he's not some distant deity. He's described as the one who walks in the midst of his church, his churches. He knows what they go through. He stands there in their midst to encourage them and to warn them. How can you not be moved by such a vision? It should inspire us. This vision should inspire you to unqualified trust and obedience and worship of this one who is the ruler of all things. Nothing surprises the one who stands at the beginning and end of history and everywhere in between and who will come and judge the world. Nothing escapes the notice of the one who has eyes like fire that sees all things. Nothing frustrates him from bringing all his promises to fulfillment, especially the ones written about in the book of Revelation. Nothing shakes the one who has feet like bronze Nothing shakes the one who has conquered death by his own resurrection, who holds the keys of Hades and death. Such a person is worthy of your trust and mind. Such a person is worthy of your worship and mind. Such a person is worthy of your unqualified obedience. That is something worth sacrificing for. And I'd suggest to you at the very center of the book stands this vision of Jesus Christ. If all we use Revelation for is just to construct end time charts and figure out uh, what is fulfilling what and how close we are to the end, we've missed the point of the whole book. So what should we do with the book of Revelation? Revelation. How should we treat it? What is it calling us to do? Let me just say three things in conclusion. Number one, the book of Revelation calls us to worship God and the lamb, no matter what the consequences. Did you know the book of Revelation is primarily a book about worship? It's not about end times. It's a book about worship. Sometime, read through, thumb through the book of Revelation and notice how many hymns and songs are sung by different groups. Revelation is a book of worship. It calls you and me to worship God and the Lamb no matter what the consequences that brings. In a world that contests that, in a world that challenges God's sovereignty, in a world where that is not popular, whether in the 1st century or the 21st century, Revelation calls the people of God to worship God and the Lamb no matter what the consequences it brings. And this vision of Christ should stir us to trust and obedience and worship over the one who is sovereign over all things. Second, Revelation also calls us to resist evil and oppression and injustice wherever we see it by maintaining our faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether it's it's in our own lives, our own communities, our own nation, our own country, wherever evil and injustice exists, Revelation exposes that and calls on God's people to resist it through faithful witness to the person of Jesus Christ in a darkened world that so desperately needs to see that. Finally, revelation calls us to not become too comfortable in our own world. Revelation should cause God's people to loosen their grip on the treasures that this world has to offer. As someone has once said, revelation comforts the afflicted. Yes, it does that, but it also afflicts the comfortable. Those that have become too comfortable in this world and what it has to offer, that their vision of Christ has become blurred. Revelation wakes us up and calls us to not become too comfortable, but to follow the lamb, Jesus Christ, wherever he goes. settle for trendy popular approaches to revelation that just treat it as a prediction of 21st century events instead see it for what it is it's it's meant to inspire you it's it's meant to wake you up it's meant to stir you to follow god and his son jesus christ the lamb no matter what the consequences that brings It's meant to cause you to give them allegiance and the worship that they deserve. It's meant to get you to resist evil and injustice in your own life and in the world by witnessing to the truth of the gospel in your lives and speech, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's meant to get you to not be so comfortable in this world. So please, don't ignore this book. Read it. Think about it. Listen to it. Meditate on it. Listen to your pastor's sermons on it. Obey it. Your life depends on it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this book that we call the book of Revelation. Lord, I pray that we will not ignore it, but I pray that we will embrace it, and especially its call to worship and obey you, your son, Jesus Christ, no matter what the consequences that might bring in this life. Father, help us to be diligent to hear its message and to obey it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.